No longer a slave to sin, I'm a child of God. That's a praise song, isn't it? Uh, I promise I'll get to the notes, whether you like it or not. But uh, I, need to, I, I feel like I want to talk to you for a second. There's a truism in, in leadership that if you have a mission statement, if you do not execute it, all you have is a slogan. And it's pretty clear what, what, what the mission feeling, mission statement, the vision of what we're trying to accomplish here at Real Life. I mean, for the region. I wore the shirt purposely. And so as I came to be, to be the interim filling in for a period of time, I thought it would be interesting to see at Real Life, is that being executed or has that been reduced to a slogan? I was thrilled at Christmas time. How, how many gifts came in? I thought, well, that, that's a for the region thing. I mean, you're executing your, your vision. Yesterday, uh, you're probably aware of this young girl that was killed in a car accident, tragic teenager. Real life provided the funeral. Uh, I, I had the privilege of teaching. A lot of the kids uh, talked about their friend. The room was filled with high school students and parents. And, uh, and then there was a meal afterwards. It was all free. Everything was just given to this family that's grieving and hurting. And I thought, that's a for the region day. That's a for the region day. This is not a slogan here, is it? This is what we're trying to accomplish. This is what, who we are. Uh, Chandra and her team were all here. There were volunteers in the kitchen. There were people serving food. Uh, the whole service, everything was just given to them. Uh, we, you hear me banging the drum that kingdom is living my life, that God receive glory. That's probably in today's sermon again. I think churches have that responsibility. To conduct ourselves in such a way that God received glory. Yesterday was a kingdom day at real life. And yesterday was a for the region day at real life. So I, I think you ought to be aware when that happens. So real life, they say, this isn't a slogan. It's really who you are. And so uh, I think you ought, you ought to just, uh, yeah, I think you just ought to stand back and say, you know, we're, it's not our glory, but here's a hurting family dealing with a tragedy who are just, I was here. The emotions were, were, were rich. And real life stepped up. And so I'm just, I'm just so, so pleased. One nation under God. Obviously the series title is sarcastic. We are not one nation. We are as divided as we can be. And I, I don't want to redo everything, but if you're just coming in now, I, I want to just quickly give you a two-second synopsis to kind of bring up to speed because we're building on something every week. The divide did not begin under President Trump. So he's been there. But it seems more pronounced today. The right and the left, the conservatives, the liberals screaming at each other. Conservatives say Obama was the worst president of our lifetime. Liberals are saying Obama was the best president of my lifetime. Conservatives are saying Trump is the best of all time. Liberals are saying he's clearly the worst of all time. 2016, sociologists say it was the year of backwards voting. First time in our history that was clearly backwards voting. Backwards voting says that I voted for, for Trump not because I loved him, but I was not going to vote for Hillary Clinton. Flip it. Uh, people say, I, I voted for Hillary Clinton, not because I bought into her, but I was not going to vote for Trump. It was the era of backwards voting, holding my nose and, and voting. It goes on and on, and, and you've heard it. And now we live at, at a boiling point of aggravation. COVID-19, we're on top of it, and it spikes. 
And we're on top of it again, and it spikes again, and we, we go to level three, and then back to level two, then back to level four, and we don't know where we are anymore. That's that boiling point of frustration. We're seeing on news riots and tearing down statues, and whether you agree with it or not, it's not the issue. It, it adds to the boiling point of the aggravation, and the key into this angry nation, and the key of this divided nation, the key is we're trying to bring the gospel. And does Satan use all these separations against the church? Does he use the divide in the nation to try to create divide in the church? Yeah. So we've got to guard against it. And my fear is, as we inch closer and closer to November, the divide and the screaming will get more pronounced. Satan works in division. He functions best in division. He struggles at unity. For Satan, everything going on in our country is the gift that just keeps on giving. And the votes that they press from us is they say, I will provide the American dream. The American dream, whether we realize it or not, is vital to what we become. And at face value, it's good. I've earned it. My house, my car, my income, my comfort, my, my lifestyle, whatever. The American dream, bottom line, is about me. You want my all-important votes? What are you going to provide for me? Meet my needs. Increase me. And Jesus comes along with the polar opposite. He says, take up your cross. Sacrifice. Follow Christ, a living sacrifice. Talk about an axiomoron. Two words that don't go together. Die out to yourself. So the gospel is actually pinned against the American dream. And the American religion is the American dream. And we end up being trapped in that and we're so fragile. It's about me. And if I don't achieve my dreams, Satan jumps in. Now let's move on. Next week we'll conclude the entire series. One of the problems of human personhood is we want to find fulfillment. That's natural, of course. But we try to find fulfillment in ourselves. We try to find meaning within ourselves. And we develop our own passions. I've heard a great definition for passion. Personal energy. Where your passion is, is where your personal energy is probably going to be. And you love to talk about your passion. Something we can boast about. Something gives us joy, self-confidence. But in the effect of sin, we tend to look for this fulfillment in the wrong places rather than the one person who really does give fulfillment. Christ alone actually does provide that fulfillment. You ever notice Psalm 60, 41, verse 6? Take a look at it. God is our refuge, strength, ever-present help in trouble. Wow! Wow! He's our refuge. He's our strength. As we look for fulfillment... Kind of a cousin to that, related to that somehow. As we look for fulfillment, we look for security. All these are natural, but we look for security in institutions or possessions or government. Meet my needs. Come to me. The American dream is me. And the gospel just cries out, kingdom. Here we go. Living my life that God receives glory. And everything else is a symptom of that. How I am as a husband, how I am as a dad, how I am with my finances, living my life that God receives glory. I thought, that's why I was so pleased with yesterday. Real life, live their life in such a way that God receives glory. I think sometimes we say, I don't understand all that, but I understand me. I understand me. I know my desires. I know my hurts. I know my story. I lived out my story. I understand me. I don't understand all that. So here's the tricky sentence. I don't understand so that I can believe. I believe 
so that I can begin to understand. I know, I know. Don't go fast here. That's a really weird sentence, but there's, there's a powerful biblical truth. If you're willing to understand everything to believe, you're never going to get spiritual life. If you're willing to understand everything about Jesus before you accept him, you're never going to get there. I do not understand to believe. But what happens is I believe and then I begin to understand. That's not a word play. Believing in the one, putting my faith in the one, in that one, Christ, finally does begin to produce a level of spiritual freedom. I'm no longer floating downstream in my life. So it, it becomes a tricky question, doesn't it? Do I have the courage to believe in something I don't totally understand? Because I think one of Satan's best ploys is to say, get more information. Continue to gain more knowledge. Why should you jump off a cliff if you don't know how far, far down it is? Find out more. And then you'll be in a position to bring Christ into your life. That is a terrible deception. You believe to begin to understand. Do you have that kind of courage? Can I reject the American dream? And the key is discipleship. It's amazing to me when Jesus spoke on discipleship, the crowd never loved him. Sermon on the Mount. He's speaking to approximately 5,000 people. And then he calls for people to follow him. About 120 follow. How? How can you be that bad? How do you lose 4,880 people in one sermon? How do you go from a church of 5,000 to 120? If there's a church authority, a bishop or a district superintendent, you call them and say, what did you do? And don't ever do it again. How do you go from 5,000 to 120? How did he turn off the crowd at that extent? He laid down really difficult truths, but it's truths. He talked about discipleship, not miracles, not blessings. Wow, yes, miracles and blessings exist to his praise. But he talked about abandoning everything for a kingdom, never again being fragile in your walk. It's the classic sermon, but the Sermon on the Mount is incredibly aggressive. And over 80% of the crowd walks away from him. But his grand finale of that sermon for me is the dagger. I want you to see it. He's ending the sermon. Look at what he says. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Wait a second. I thought if I cried out to him as Lord, I'm going to heaven. Not everyone who says that, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and even perform miracles? I will tell you, I never knew you, evildoers. Ooh, I'm uncomfortable with that verse. But it's there, we've got to talk about it. I think when I'm most uncomfortable, who's he talking to? Maybe he's talking to those that follow a false god. Crying out to that false god, well, they're not going to go to heaven. There are a lot of cults out there. Or maybe he's talking to people in the Far East that are still following a Buddha religion. Tell them that they're not serving the true God who's changing their lives, entering their relationship. I get if he's telling them, hey, you ain't going to heaven. Or maybe groups of Muslims who cry out to Allah and deny Jesus. They won't see the kingdom of heaven. Who is he talking to? 
Or, or maybe some church folk who scream out to Jesus when they need him and they're never going to miss an Easter. They're not going to see the kingdom of heaven. They attend on Easter and act like there's no God. They're called functioning atheists. Who's he talking to? When he says, you, you cry out, Lord, Lord, you ain't going to heaven. Here's what eats at me. He's talking to us. I wish he was talking to cults. I wish he was talking to the obvious people who deny Christ. He's talking to us who call out to Christ. The church telling us we might be eternally damned. I don't like that. The wonderful church. He tells us we may, may need to make serious personal changes or be lost for eternity. He can't say that to us. We do good things. We're the church. No wonder so many were turned off. He quotes us and says, you're just doing good things using my name, attacking my name on. The problem here, Isaiah spoke to this. Isaiah 64, 6. We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, what interesting words, our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags like autumn leaves, whether whether in fall and our sin swept away like the wind. Righteous deeds. That's good stuff. Righteous deeds. Come on. That's really good religious stuff. And without Christ, he calls them filthy rags. Now, I want to be tactful here. Filthy rags, literal translation, is used cloths that women use for a menstrual cycle. He tried to find the most throwaway thing he could. I mean, talk about driving the point home, huh? Hey, this is not fun. Jesus is supposed to meet my needs and bless me. He does. I didn't know I have a role to fill. Yes, he meets my needs, but sometimes we forget our role because it gets tied into the American dream. And then Jesus ends that thing with even more aggravation. I don't know you. Back up a second. He's all-knowing. How does he get away with that? You ever think about this stuff? If I could find something he doesn't know, doesn't he forfeit being all-knowing? Logic. And it's not like we discovered something he doesn't. He admits himself, I don't know you, but I'm still all-knowing. You see the tension here? Seems to me he can't be all-knowing if he doesn't know me. How do we pull this off? In the Greek, it's the word know. It means relational. It means discipleship. He knows you. He knows your heart. He knows your thoughts. He knows your dreams. He knows your frustrations. He knows the hairs on your head. He's not saying he doesn't know you in the sense of knowing. He's saying we didn't have that kind of relationship, that know relationship. It's even used for intimacy. The Old Testament, remember? So-and-so knew so-and-so and begat so-and-so. Well, you know what that knowing's going on. Intimacy. That Old Testament word for that level of intimacy, of oneness of two people. Jesus is using about our relationship. We never had a relationship. You didn't choose me. But wait a second. I put Jesus' stuff on Facebook. Jesus has a warning to us in his love. Many will be shocked, eternally shocked, to find out they're not in the kingdom at all. And they've done religious deeds. They went to church. They were honestly good people. They were high moral people. This bothers me. 
as a pastor, do I believe that all I'm doing in the church full time, is it about me? Am I living kingdom? This is a checkpoint for us. Am I trying to advance the kingdom of God so that I could be seen as a guy who can do it? Has all the growth at, at VNC been because Gene's a good guy and knows how to communicate? Or has it been for the glory of God? I stumble at this. Is everything you're doing, is it about, I'm really a good person? You are. Or is this a checkpoint to say, God, you receive glory. In, in America, we, we've nailed this down to an intellectual decision. I have made a one-time decision, and I have a ticket to heaven. I'm just playing it out. That's, not, that's politically correct. This is not true. Jesus comes along and says, take up your cross. Jesus comes along and follow me at all costs. It is a desperation for him. Salvation comes with a deep wrestling in our soul. The sinfulness of our soul and a desperation for his grace. He says, I want you to be desperate for me. Not just checking a checklist that I've done something right. He doesn't want to be accepted or invited. He wants to be worthy of surrender. He comes to us and raises the bar. And some people can't take it. That's why he went from 5,000 to 120. He's laying down discipleship. He's saying, yes, I am the source of blessings. Yes, I am the well that you run to. Yes, I am there. Yes, 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 yes. But also, and that but also through them. They walked out because the price tag for them was too high. Surrender everything of me. Salvation is a free gift, but it's not cheap. Salvation, come to find out, isn't about me. It's about Christ. We're not saved to be forgiven of our sins so we go to heaven. We're saved that we get the opportunity to know God and yearn for him. This is not about being forgiven so I get to heaven. It's about yearning for God that I might more and more know him and surrender. That I have this bond of him, this oneness that the Old Testament even uses the same word of a man and a woman coming together as one. That I know you. I pray for this hunger in the church. I pray for this hunger in my life. This is not a, a commercial for church attendance or, or church ministries or financial support. Those are symptoms and those are real. But it's an abandonment. He calls us into this radical dependence on him. But the American dream comes along and says, you know, you can. You can. You can accomplish anything that you set your mind to. Oh, come on, Gene, is that bad? No, it's not bad. We combine ingenuity, imagination, innovation, hard work, skill. What's wrong with that? Nothing. But can Satan take something good and pervert it, which is basically the definition of sin, isn't it? As I accomplish more and more and more, because I got gifts, as I accomplish more and more and more, does my need for Christ begin to wane a little bit? And you got gifts as you accomplish more and more because you got gifts, because you are talented, because you're innovative, because you have an imagination. You marry hard work and skill. But as you do things really well on your own, and you can, does this passion for Christ begin to wane a little bit? Because the hard fact is I've got ability without Christ.
I can accomplish things a lot without Christ. And then Isaiah comes along and says, yeah, but those were filthy rags. And could I be so busy accomplishing religious deeds that I cry out, Lord, Lord. He says, I don't, I don't really know you. What was supposed to happen between us never did, but you did good stuff. I can be a good man without Christ. I can't. I can be a good dad without Christ. I can be a good human being. I don't need Christ to do that. I can be a good citizen. I can have high morals. It's amazing all the righteous kind of deeds kind of stuff I can do, and I don't need Christ to do that. But as we live kingdom with this yearn for Christ, who wins this election and who's the president may not be the biggest issue of my life. As I live kingdom, whether I define myself as a liberal or a conservative might not be the biggest issue of my life. Kingdom purpose, Christ is now everything. Can I die out to everything else? Jesus even says, anything you do outside of me is nothing. And you could do good stuff without me. He makes it kind of clear. He uses an example. John chapter 15, verse 5. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in them, they produce much fruit. But without me, they can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. That's not true. Come on. I can do a lot. I can be a good man without Christ. I can do religious deeds without Christ. I can. Filthy rags. And by the way, Everything that I produce, because I got gifts, you got gifts. Everything that I produce without Christ, why would I praise him? You ought to praise me, I did it. If there's a trophy, give me the trophy. If there's an award, give me the award. I did it, not him. And if my life is to be designed around him receiving praise, then why would I do something outside of him? Because what I accomplish outside of him, the praise ought to go to me. And I've discovered he loves our inability. It's kind of backwards thinking, isn't it? He loves our inability so that he can. I think he intentionally puts us in unique situations where we absolutely need him. We cannot do this outside of him. My favorite is the story of Jericho. And the walls that come tumbling down. This huge city. I think I've mentioned this before. Anybody invading, the geography is weird, but if you're going to invade, you've got to go through Jericho. Well, people weren't stupid. They realized any invading army, we're like Normandy. We're step one. So they built their walls. Multiplied times more thick than anything else. Multiplied times more, more high. They wanted invading armies to come and see it and go, forget it. They were famous for the walls of Jericho. And so here, here comes Joshua and, and, and Israeli on the march. And Joshua goes to God and says, I got to have a battle plan. You know and I know we don't have enough to take down those walls. So, God, what will the plan be? Frontal attack? Some trick of some kind? Will we we starve them out? God comes and says, all right, here's what you're going to do. March around the city for seven days. Blow your horns. On the seventh day, those walls are going to collapse. If you're the general, don't you go, can I get a second opinion here? I mean... Come on, come on. Have you seen the walls? We're going to provide a parade. They're going to come down. Come on. Don't mess what God's doing. He's orchestrating something so there could be no doubt who did it. I think he does that. 
He orchestrates things so there's no doubt who gets the glory. You got talents, you got gifts, but it's about him, not you. Frankly, as I pastored Valpo, I got aggravated because I had so many things mailed to me. New strategies, new methods. Advertising that guaranteed to double my congregation. This creative strategies that will bring in the crowd. I felt like I didn't read much about the power of God. The book of Acts talk about a people who starved for the presence of Christ. Starved for the presence of Christ. And it dominated them. And after they got a little bit successful, they began to do things they knew how to do. Galatians has this wonderful warning. Galatians 3.3 You began your life in the Spirit, but now you're trying to accomplish in your own power. That is foolish. We come to Christ desiring Him so much. Conviction. And we say, forgive me on my sins. I want you. And pretty soon in our spiritual walk, we discover our gifts. And we begin to do things that we know how to do. Well, you should. But somehow those gifts begin to take over to where we don't need Christ very much to do our gifts. Jesus gave these harsh words not to be mean, but to heal. He didn't hurt. To heal. He's telling us, we want nothing counterfeit between us. How, how legit can you be? We want authenticity. And by the way, the early days of the church, the great roadblock was Greece. It was the center point of the world in so many ways. And for the Greeks and all their gods, their gods were perfect. Gods ought to be, myth or not. But perfect for them meant changelessness. So that perfection couldn't change. Therefore, they couldn't have emotions. Because your emotions fluctuate. And if somehow your emotions made you better, then you weren't perfect. I mean, if you're perfect, if we can make something go up from perfect, then you weren't perfect. It's a new perfect. And if you're perfect, the only way to go, therefore, is down. But they had to maintain perfect. So their gods had no feelings because they weren't allowed to change. They're, the Greek mythological gods could not suffer, could not love, could not hurt because they had to stay and maintain that perfect. The Greek term for this was apatheia. Yeah, we get our word apathy from here, which literally means without feelings, without suffering or joy. And so we come to them with such a different picture. We came to them and screamed, wait a second, God, oh God, God loves us. That, that, was beyond, that was beyond anything that they could take in. He warns us. They couldn't take that in. He's angry and injustice. He grieves over sin. He weeps over the death of Lazarus. And so you see, for the, the Greek nation, this, this was impossible. Their mythological gods were perfect and could not have feelings. Come back to us, the God of all time, the Lord of Lord, the King of Kings is personal with you. A holy fellowship is the reason he created the world, led him to the cross for the world he created. We're the objects of his love. And he calls us in love not to do religious deeds, but to fall in love and everything breed from there. Not to be great people, but to fall in love and have everything flow from there. 
And it's amazing how the split of a nation, and we live in perilous days, almost becomes secondary to this passion I have between me and Christ that I have the privilege of living out kingdom. Let's stand together this morning. We'll be concluding the series next week as we understand our role in a divided, hurting, angry nation. Father, we just come before you. This was a hard one today. Sermon on the Mount wasn't, wasn't, wasn't all sweet. We've got to study it because he speaks to us. Father, I don't want to merely be good. I want to yearn for you. I don't really want to be part of a great church. I want my church to yearn for you. And Father, I thank you for your presence and your power. Your word is so clear. Sometimes I think we get so tired of political correctness where we're really not sure what we're allowed to say or what anybody else is allowed to say. It just, the boundaries keep moving. Your word doesn't move. I think that's why it's so refreshing. And your word convicts us. It blesses us. But it also challenges us. Father, may nothing be in the way between me and you. And may our hearts cry. Be nothing in the way of living my life that God received glory. I thank you again for this church of the ministry of yesterday. That's a kingdom thinking church. This for the region stuff is not a slogan. It's being fulfilled and acted out and executed. It's a big difference. I thank you for days like yesterday when real life steps up to the community and says we're here and we love you and we care. That's a big deal. I thank you for every single person here May we have a yearn to not merely accomplish religious good stuff, but a yearn to know you. And we pray in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.